the Bible talks a lot about those who have a hard heart. What is that? Is that like a physical disease? It is a spiritual disease. This is not about cardiology at all. And it's really not about, you know, this thing that beats in here. This is all about, um, um, you know, when you and I uh, in literature or in movies uh, encounter an, uh, an Ebenezer Scrooge or a Simon Legree and we realize this person just has a really hard heart. You remember the guy um, in um, uh, Mr. Potter in, um, in It's a Wonderful Life? You know, just hard, hard it. Uh, you can kind of name, we could name a dozen of them real quickly. We, we found in literature. Well, the idea here is that the heart, uh, um, when, when, when we see a person like that, and when the Bible talks about it, they're not talking, the Bible's not talking about um, um, exactly that image, particularly of the heart. More fundamentally, the, the Bible says that the heart is more than just the emotional center of human personality, but it's the center of the will. It's where we make decisions. And so when a person gets to that place, it's because their will has turned in some ways against God. You and I know that the emotional implications of that are myriad. That bitterness usually follows. Impatience, arrogance, um, Lots and lots of those kinds of things. Indifference. And I'm going to say to you that there is a cure for a hard heart, but only God knows it because only he has it. Now, I want you to kind of think with me a little bit. Let's do a little bit of history lesson because this is going to be kind of important to us today to kind of get this. Um, as a backdrop to what we're going to study here in Romans 9, um, is kind of a multi-generational saga that begins really in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham that uh, among them that his uh, descendants will be as numerous as the uh, sands on the seashore. There's a problem with that. What's the problem? He's old and they have no children. Um, so... Um, so that's kind of the story of Generation 1. Generation 1 features Abraham, his wife Sarah, and, and her handmaid Hagar. Okay, and we will talk about that in a little bit. Now, Generation 2 of this story features Isaac, who is the son of Abraham and Sarah, and Ishmael, who's the son of Abraham and Hagar. And uh, Abraham later marries another wife after Sarah's gone. Her name is Keturah. He has sons by her, but they really don't factor into this part of the story. In Romans 9. So then generation 3 then would show us Isaac's two sons. And what were their names? Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. <laughs> but the promise uh, given, the, the, God's promises were passed down through Jacob. We'll talk about that in a little bit too. And his name was changed by God to what? Israel. That's the name we read in the paper every day. Okay. So we've got got that part of the story. That would be generation three. Um, now, from then on, uh, the story extends and the promise extends to, to Jacob or Israel's 12 sons. Um, and we're going to kind of, uh, we'll see all of that. But there's a problem that exists by the time we get in the New Testament because in the church in Rome, there are believers there who are Jewish by from 
descent, and, and therefore they've had the law, and there are those in the church, but there are also those who are new Gentile Christians, Roman Christians in the church, um, who don't have all that background and don't have all that DNA. And uh, so there's some friction that exists between the two groups. One of the issues seems to have revolved around uh, the God's promises to the nation of Israel. Perhaps some of those early Jewish Christians um, touted those promises pretty arrogantly and said, we well, you know I kind of got it and you don't. And um, I can't imagine humans doing that to each other. Can you? I'm kind of in and you're not kind of in even though we've got Jesus in common, which I find that really intriguing. But it made the Gentiles in that Roman church um, with kind of that Gentile background, even though they believed in the same Savior and had accepted him in the same way by faith, it made them feel kind of inferior and, um, and second class. And it was kind of okay with some in the church that they felt that way. So Paul's going to wade in on that kind of tooth and toenail here in chapter 9. All right, Paul's never one to back down from a fight. So, here we go. Somebody, if you would, Steve uh, Blair, would you mind read 6, 7, and 8 out of 9? Romans 9? Okay, now, he makes a, I think it's interesting, Paul writes in several different styles, but here's one of the ways he writes, one of the kind of literary um, um, uh, tools that he uses. He'll write, he'll make a sweeping kind of a grand statement like he's going to make here in verse 6. And then he, begin, he goes on for sometimes chapters describing, explaining. But he makes this grand statement. Now, I'm noticing lately that uh, one of the new, um, um, uh, our sister-in-law has been doing some genealogical work, actually for me, which has been wonderful, and uh, to kind of discover all that stuff. But I'm noticing that there is something advertised now where you can, um, you can kind of hire this group and give them some of your DNA, and they'll tell you all this stuff about you based on your DNA. Have you, have you seen that? Yeah. I, I think that's really intriguing, and I'm kind of... Uh, you know, it's like, oh, that would be interesting to find out if, if I'm re really from here and not from here, you know, that kind of thing, because they, they, they talk about that. Well, so we can get, it's interesting, we can get DNA tested for genealogy. But Paul is saying here in verse 6, <clears throat> just because you are positive for Hebrew DNA, Abraham's blood, Abraham's DNA. Just because you would test positive for Abraham's DNA doesn't mean you've got his faith. And one of the things that drives me nearly every day. Celebrated dad's birthday this last week. Think a lot about him on August 9th every year. And uh, yeah, uh, mom's is coming up in September. And, and I begin to think about their faith and I recognize that just because Buzz and Sally had faith doesn't mean that I did. And I, they gave me a great example to follow, but I had to follow it. My DNA isn't all that matters here. And Paul's kind of said that. He, he makes this statement, not all who are Israel 
or of Israel, are Israel. It's kind of an interesting little statement. So Paul makes it really clear that belonging to Israel in a physical sense, so having Abraham DNA, is not the same as belonging in a spiritual sense. In the Bible here, it is not a matter of, although they thought it was, it's not a matter of DNA. That's what put in that next blank. Now let's look at a place. I told you to kind of keep your finger in Genesis. Will somebody go to Genesis 21:12 and read about this right here? Okay, now, this is really critical here, not only for our discussion in Romans 9, for, but for our discussion in 2016. Only Isaac was to be the child of promise. Um, and it's critical even in our day. Now, the truth is, what do you, go with me here just for a minute before you start throwing rotten tomatoes at me. What do Muslims and Jews have in common? They have shared DNA. I find that really intriguing, that they have Abrahamic DNA. Okay? So uh, the truth is um, that uh, they both claim to be the people of God. They both claim to have Abraham as father and in their sacred writings include the story of that. But where they, it becomes divergent is in the story of our Bible that we're reading, that Paul's quoting from here, and that we looked at here in Genesis 21, the child of promise of Abraham, his name is what? Isaac. If you read the Muslim sacred word, it's going to tell you that the child of promise was Ishmael. That's the main, isn't it interesting that all this junk we're involved in today has to do with that little separation? It might have seemed small then. It's become huge now, hasn't it? I, I, I just find that really, really intriguing. So what you do here, Paul says in Romans 9, what you do with this story about DNA is really, really important. So let's go on. Now, Mr. Blair, can I prevail on you again? To read? Have you got four more verses in you? Five more verses? 9 through 13? All right. Thank you, buddy. Through uh, 13. We're good. Yep. Okay, now I want you to go with me to Genesis 17. We're going to park out in 17 and 18 in just a minute. But I read a story this week about a guy who is sad. He's 
in uh, the local pub, and he says, uh, the bartender says, is there anything wrong? There's a well-dressed customer who sat kind of sobbing into his drink. And um, the guy says, well, two, two months ago, my grandfather died and left me $100,000. It doesn't sound like anything to be said about. Said the bartender, it should happen to me. Yeah, said the sour young man. But last month, an uncle on my father's side passed away, and he left me $95,000. So why are you sitting here looking so unhappy? This month, not a cent. Uh, <laughs> It's all about inheritance. It's all about inheritance, isn't it? Now, here's the story. Whose son, according to what Steve read from, from Romans 9, 9, whose son was the son of promise? Isaac. Okay, Isaac was the son of promise. But let's go to 17, Genesis 17. Would somebody read verse 17, 18, and 19 from Genesis 17? It's going to tell us that original story that Paul is citing here. Anybody got it? This is really critical here. Whose son was the son of promise? Now you could say it was Abraham's son. You'd be right, but you'd only be half right. It's actually Sarah's son that was the son of promise. So catch that here. And if you read on into chapter 18, you're going to read really some interesting language there because the angel is talking, uh, kind of the, some men of God are talking to, to Abraham and saying, you know, when, I, when we come back next year, by the way, Abraham reminds them that God has promised me a son. And uh, Ishmael's already on the scene. He was not a child of faith. He was a child of, of uh, flesh. And um, um, you, you know about all that story. They kind of got ahead of God on that. And Abraham's talking to these, um, these gentlemen who turn out to be angels. And they said, uh, we're coming back next year. When we come back next year, Sarah will be bouncing a little boy on her knee. His name will be Isaac. And uh, they're talking to, to Abraham. But Sarah is listening on the phone. She's in the other room listening. And in a really crude piece of Hebrew in chapter 18 in about verse 12 or so Sarah says something that's really hard to write out in Hebrew but it is included here in your Bible it's kind of explained but it's Sarah says and this is kind of how you pronounce this word when Sarah heard, heard this thing happen or this promise that God made through his servants through his messengers to her husband Abraham that that you, this old man, are going to have uh, a son. His name is going to be Isaac, and he's going to be born to Sarah, who's in the other room. Sarah says, and this is how it's, it's pronounced like this, but it's hard to write in Hebrew. She said, <laughs> I don't know how you write that, you know. It's in Hebrew somewhere. <laughs> One of those, okay. She laughed. In fact, she, it was so funny to her that she names the kid 
has something to do with, he, I laughed, you know, that kind of thing. So, well, um, here's the idea. The son of promise is Abraham's and Sarah's. In fact, what Estella read a bit ago uh, tells us, gives us a little interesting piece of detail because Abraham tries to bargain with God, with these messengers. What does he say? Can't you just do it through Ishmael? I, I find that really intriguing. Maybe I've missed that before. He tries to bargain with God. Why don't you, I've already got a little boy. Why don't you just bless the world through him? And the messengers, who are the messengers of God, say, and oh, no, no, that's not the way God had this in mind, Sarah will have a son. So it's very clear here that that, that genealogy is important, and Paul invokes it here. Now, verse 10, uh, he goes to the next generation, and he talks about Rebekah and uh, Isaac. When Isaac becomes uh, a man, he uh, marries Rebekah. That's a beautiful story of how they met uh, one of the great romances of uh, the Old Testament, I think. And Isaac and Re Rebecca get together. And Rebecca is, um, um, uh, becomes expectant with twin boys. And it's clear here that only one of Rebecca's sons would inherit the promise as well. So in this story, in this kind of second generation story, there's no competing moms this time. There's no Sarah versus Hagar, okay? There are competing boys, competing sons. Jacob and Esau, you know that story, how um, Jacob kind of tricks Esau out of his birthright, his blessing. But the truth is, uh, something had happened even before these boys were born. Now, let's go back to Genesis 25. Okay, we were in 17 a minute ago. Let's go to 25. And somebody read verse 23. I got it? The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Okay. One's going to serve the other. And the older, by 15 minutes, will serve the younger. Remember that story? They're twins, came out, uh, you know, and one was holding the heel of the other. Remember? They um, called him heel grabber, Jacob. All right. Um, all right. So there's that story. And the older will serve the younger, he says. So it wasn't, you know, all this intrigue about uh, Jacob uh, fooling his dad and and, you know, tricking Esau, all that. Okay. But this was predicted before they were born. It's interesting to me. And if you read on, if you go to 28, um, 28 13, it's going to say it this way. Um, it's going to say, this is Jacob. Jacob gets sent away. He's running for his life from Esau. And, he's, uh, and God appears to him. The Lord stood above this ladder that he had seen and says, I'm the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the, and the land on which you lie, he says to Jacob, I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and in your descendants, so all the families of the earth be blessed. The promise carries through Jacob, and he gives him the name Esau. And the basis of the choice was simply that God said it would happen that way. 
what is really clear here, if you look back in verse 11 and 12, what seems really clear here, Paul wants to make the case that this decision was made, the die was cast, the child of promise was chosen before Jacob and Esau, either one could do anything. Not based on what they did, based on what God chose to do before either of them could earn it. That's the answer to the when before birth. Now, Paul in verse 13 is going to go back uh, to that 2000 or so B.C. passage. And he's going to go fast forward about 1,400 years to five or 600 B.C. And he's going to invoke the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So if you can find Matthew and turn left, you're there. All right? Malachi 1 the preamble to this little book is a discussion about Jacob and Esau. And Paul is going to use it here. I thought we might read what the prophet Malachi had to say. Malachi 4, if somebody, I'm sorry, Malachi 1, the first four verses. Somebody want to read it? Okay, now, Malachi is setting the stage, getting us ready for the dawn of the New Testament 500 years later. Okay? He's going to say, he's going to talk about the fulfillment of that prophecy, that promise that came through Jacob. Now, I want to just tease you for a moment with this before we go on in Romans 9. What you got to, he says here, he uses some harsh language that is kind of hard for us in our English Bibles to understand when Malachi quotes, and, and, uh, and Paul quotes here, uh, Malachi, and, and, and Malachi is invoking God, saying that, um, that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. That's kind of what was there, right? What I want to submit to you to think about as you go forward now, 500 years, to the dawning of the New Testament. So if you're in Malachi, you turn to Matthew. We're not going to go there. But there's four or 500 years of time that's passed in between the, uh, the Testaments there. What you need to think about is the son of Israel, the son of Jacob, that is the hero of the New Testament and the hero of your life. His name is Jesus. The descendant of Jacob is Jesus. Guess who the descendant of Esau is? Herod. Think about that. That's kind of interesting. As the New Testament, certainly, uh, he becomes, by the way, a central figure in Matthew when you turn those couple of pages and Matthew begins. Isn't it interesting to you that when Malachi says, makes this prediction, as it comes to fulfillment, 
the son of Jacob is Jesus, our hero. And the son of Esau, who, by the way, was constantly making bad choices. Uh, if you read enough history, you'll find out that, um, that King Herod the Great, who was such a scoundrel, was an Edomite, a son of Esau. I just find that really intriguing in the context of this passage. So, Paul quotes now from 1,400 years later regarding the fulfillment of that process, uh, promise. Now, let's go to verse 14, back in Romans 9. Let's read down through 18, and we'll kind of, kind of clean this up. Okay, here we go. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Does that sound like anything to you? Doesn't that sound like what we studied in Romans 6? When Paul says, so we continue in sin that grace may abound, may it never be. It's kind of the same, uh, he's using this uh, reduction to the absurd idea again. And, and the answer here, can we charge God with being unjust? And I want you to kind of hang on to that question because often we ask, God, you're just not fair. Are you being fair here? And Paul reduces that to the absurd. Is this mean, does this mean that God is not fair? May it never be. To charge God with being unjust is just absurd, Paul says. So Paul then, in verse 15, jumps back now a thousand years to the time of Moses. So let me, um, let me read verse 15, and we'll continue. That's what he says. After kind of giving this rhetorical question about God's justice. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, we've got to kind of apply this. But Paul jumps back a thousand years and he's kind of dealing with Moses here. And he, he kind of gives this wonderful passage here from Exodus 33. Actually, in my, in my um, um, Bible reading this week, my devotional reading, I was in Exodus 33. And it was kind of wonderful reading. And he, he talks about God's mercy and God's justice. And, and God um, it talks about how overwhelmingly merciful he is. By the way, the context of Exodus 33 is God is about ready to give up on Israel and Moses intercedes for them. And he says to Moses, you know what? I'll have mercy on who I want to have mercy on. He doesn't say it like that, but that's the message. And he eventually says, okay, buddy, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. It's actually quite beautiful when you think about it. It's interesting here that I think through this whole passage, effort is never the issue. It's never the issue. How hard I try. Doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, verse 16 says. Effort's never the issue. Ephesians 2 says, it is by grace you are saved through faith. So you can't kind of brag about it, he goes on to say. It's all in God. Ours is only to listen to his word and to choose. So in verse 17 and 18, which I read, he kind of invokes the idea back from 1500 or so BC about um, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart 
as the children of Israel were needing to be led out of captivity. And the words that he uses here, here's two words that I put on your outline. <coughs> These words that he shares here in verse 18 are both chilling and comforting. It talks about the mercy of God, and it talks about hardening. The mercy of God is at his initiative. But for he who has a hard heart, ask Pharaoh how that worked out. You see, Pharaoh's heart was hard before God ever asked him to turn Israel loose. And it continued to be hardened. Ask Pharaoh how that worked out. God was able to use his hard heart, but Pharaoh's got no excuse. His heart was hard to start with. I want us to go to one other Old Testament passage. If somebody would go to Micah 7.18, this is really beautiful. And I believe it tells us a little bit about God's cure for a hard heart. Okay? If you feel like your heart is getting a little hard towards someone or some situation in your life, is there a cure for that? Is there somebody in your life that you think they are beyond God's ability to touch? They are beyond God's ability to save. Oh, man. The Lord can't ever help this guy. Been there? You know, I often use the phrase, and I mean it, when I talk about somebody that I've met, or I'm talking to one of you, and we're talking about a child or grandchild or some friend who is far from God. Far from God. That's true. I met a guy now nearly 30 years ago. Probably was more than 30 years ago. His name was Jerry. And he was far from God. And he was a West Virginia hillbilly and he was an engineer on a railroad. Tough. He, when he wasn't working, he played golf only in days ending and why? His wife was the, one of the best youth volunteers I've ever known. Deeply spiritual and faithful. We talked just last week. Her name was Patty. She was about four foot three. I'm not exaggerating that. She's tiny. Weighed 90 pounds soaking wet. Jerry was big and tough and far from God. And he had a hard heart. And I remember thinking in my youth, youthful exuberance, I didn't say it to Patty, but I remember thinking, he'll never come to faith. How foolish was I? What, somebody got it? Somebody read Micah 7, 18. What's the cure? He delights in showing un failing love. Here's the last blank. A cure for a hard heart is God's mercy. His love. His heart. Patty probably prayed for Jerry for 30 years. They got married when she was really young. He was just getting out of the Marine Corps. And I just remember thinking, how did these two ever get together? And I'd ask her that question. She'd tell me how good he had been to her all her life but he was far from God. Guess what? 
when Jerry finally accepted Jesus, he fell pretty hard. And their lives changed completely. And I never again want to say, Lord, his heart's too hard to be saved. The truth is, there are those who remain defiant until the very end. God's message for you is here in Micah. And I want to leave you with this thought. The Lord longs for the hard-hearted to repent. He longs for sinners to repent. He longs. Prove me wrong by reading the New Testament, okay? The Lord longs for those who are far from him to be drawn close. And the good news of all that is, it takes, for a person who's miles and miles from God, it only takes one step because he does the rest of the work. The work of mercy is all his. Okay, I love it when the Old Testament and the New Testament intersect as they have here. We're going to go to Romans 11 next week. We'll be in, in Romans a couple more weeks. And I'm going to be really happy to not have to grind this out every week when we're past it. But, Jopi? Uh, no, no, no. Because uh-uh. Esau was not a ch- Esau was a child of both Abraham and Sarah through Isaac. So no, would not. But he was an Edomite, which was another one of those groups in the Old Testament. Read the read the prophet Obadiah that was just pronounced judgment by God because they were so wicked. And eventually that leads to this offspring of of Esau, who's Herod. But no, it wouldn't lead to. She's asking. Would uh, Muhammad have come in the 600s A.D. through Esau's line? No, because he was the child of Ishmael and on down that way. Not um, um, uh, Esau would have been a child of Abraham, Isaac. Okay, Abraham and Isaac, and but not Jacob. Okay, good question. Thanks, gang. See you next week.